following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. East Liberty Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is nothing short of breathtaking, if you've ever seen it. I used to work for a ministry organization in Pittsburgh, so annually I would go there, and the offices of this organization were in an old bank building just down the street from this massive cathedral, and being from Philadelphia, I automatically assumed it was Episcopalian or Roman Catholic or something, and when someone said, you know, that's a Presbyterian church, I said, get out of here. There's no way, because it doesn't look like a Presbyterian church, certainly not like this little one we have here. East Liberty Presbyterian Church is a masterpiece of Gothic-style architecture. It has soaring arches, massive columns, stunning stained-glass windows running up and down the exterior walls. It's a, uh, it's a whopping 202 feet long and 117 feet wide, 75 feet high. It's huge. And the architect, famous architect Ralph Adams Cram, described the building as his own personal masterpiece from all of his career. He said, this church has been the most profound spiritual experience of my life. But where did the church come from? Richard Mellon, who made a massive fortune during the industrialization of the city of Pittsburgh in the late 19th century, early 20th century. He funded this project as part of his charitable giving shortly after the onset of the Great Depression. He and his wife, Jenny, provided $4 million in their numbers. That's equal to about $70 million today. They personally wrote a check for $70 million to fund the construction of this cathedral. But why? Why would they do such a thing right at the outset of the Great Depression? They surely lost a lot of money when the stock market crashed. Why did the Mellons give so much money to a church-building project? Historian and architecture critic Charles Rosenblum says this, quote, Local wags called it the Mellons' fire escape, as though a church might save the family from a heated afterlife. In other words, some people seem to think that the donors, the Mellon family, put God into their debt in order to secure deliverance from the torments of hell, calling this building a fire escape. Now that's a pretty cynical take, isn't it? None of us are here today. Nobody, even 100 years ago, would have been in a position, any position, to judge Richard Mellon's motives for bankrolling the construction of East Liberty Presbyterian Church. There's no way to know. We can't see into his heart. But let this nickname be a warning to us. Mellon's fire escape. Let it be a warning to us as we consider this morning Christ's direct exhortation from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. He's laid a foundation in the Sermon on the Mount for the disciples to understand the quality of the kingdom of heaven. It's populated by people who are poor in heart, in need of mercy, seeking and hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God to break into the world even now by this kingdom of heaven. 
And now he's building upon his program, or building upon his foundation, a program of discipleship, as it were, a building project. And in chapter 5, he's taught his disciples not only that the entrance into the kingdom is all of God's grace, but that the law of God still applies, and in fact applies at a deeper level than anybody previously thought. Not just to actions and to words, but even to the level of the heart. That's what chapter 5 is generally put all about. The law of God in the kingdom of heaven applies to the man's hearts, desires, loves, inmost being, indeed his whole being. What Hebrew uh, authors would write the whole heart in the Old Testament again and again. And here, Christ continues with his sermon by teaching that kingdom living is gracious living, indeed from a heart wholly committed to God and not at all distracted by, uh, by the thoughts of men or reputation. So to illustrate this, he begins with the topic of gracious giving. And as you heard, he'll go into extended teaching on prayer, and then later on he'll talk about fasting. Three things that can be observed by others, but ought to be wholly committed to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Specifically in our passage this morning, and this is really what I want to press on you today from these verses, Christ teaches us that religious deeds performed for the approval of men are done in vain, but that which is given for God's glory shall be rewarded by your heavenly Father. Religious deeds performed for the approval of men, those around us, are in fact done in vain. But that which is given, money, time, talent, resources, whatever, for God's glory shall be rewarded by your heavenly Father. We'll look at this under two headings. First, the vanity of man-centered religion in verses 1 and 2. Christ puts it pretty bleakly for us. And then the wisdom of God-centered religion in verses 3 and 4. So the vanity of man-centered religion in 1 and 2, and the wisdom of God-centered religion in 3 and 4. First, the vanity of man-centered religion. It's interesting, this first verse is something of a theme verse for everything that comes between now and and verse 21, but it is specifically tied to uh, verse 2 as well, as Christ opens up for his disciples what man-centered religion is. So we might ask first, okay, so what is it? Look at his words with me. He warns his disciples, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Another way to translate that opening line when Jesus says, uh, beware of practicing your righteousness is, be sure not to do all y'all's righteousness before men or the face of men in order to be separated or uh, spectated, noticed, seen by them. He's not telling his disciples not to do religious things in front of other people. He's telling them not to do those things in order to be seen by other people. That's the emphasis in Christ's teaching here. Because man-centered religion, as he illustrates in verse 2, is performance art. It's, it's religious 
uh, uh, theater or theatrical religion. He even uses a word from the theater, the, the word hypocrite or hypocritos in the Greek. It's actually speaking of an actor, someone who on the stage literally puts on a mask upon his face to hide his identity and take on a part. So Jesus is saying man-centered religion looks like this, looks like play-acting. It's theater. It's literally putting on a show. And he's warning his disciples not to do that. Why would his disciples need to be warned of this? These guys are fishermen. They're tax collectors. You know, they're, they're from all walks of life. Why? None of them were actors, as far as we know. So why does he say, don't be a hypocrite? Because this picture of the one who puts on a show of religious faith, of religious devotion, is the characterization of the Pharisees. Jesus' great opponents in the Gospel of Matthew. Later on, in verse 5, he says again, do not be like the hypocrites. And then in verse 16, he says again, do not put on a gloomy face or mask as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. And then later on in the Gospel, when he really hands it to the Pharisees, when he really comes down hard on them in Matthew chapter 23, he says, they, the Pharisees, whom he links up with the term hypocrites, do all their deeds to be noticed by men. All their deeds to be noticed by men. That's what man-centered religion is. It's the religious faith that says, go in front of others, Show them how good you are. Win friends and influence people. That's what man-centered religion is. It's something of purchasing favor of men, supposedly to get ahead in this life. So what's the problem with it then? Well, I think all of us instinctively um, will react against anything that's lacking genuineness or authenticity. I mean, that's in the air we breathe. We all want to be authentic and true and transparent. But Jesus highlights something very specific for his disciples as he's teaching this to them. He says in verse 2, they, uh, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. The term he uses here for uh, have their reward is that they've received their wages. They've already been paid. Um, they, they've gotten what they've been looking for already. There's nothing else for them. And what are they looking for? They're looking for acclaim. They're looking for people to applaud them, to say, hey, great job. You gave a lot of money to that organization. Or, man, you sponsored that park. I love that park. You must be a fantastic human being. Good for you. That's what they're after. That's what they get. And thus, they're barren of any real spiritual fruit from heaven. There's nothing with God for them because everything they've wanted is in this earth, and they've already received it. That's the problem with man-centered religion that Jesus highlights here. They've already received their reward. They've already been paid. Man-pleasing, then. Excuse me. Man-pleasing in this case, if we go back to Matthew 23, which is parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, we see this more clearly, but man-pleasing, Spiritually speaking, is not related to the delights of communion with God, of being in God's presence. Rather, it's related to, explicitly related to, the woe of judgment. Eight times 
Jesus will pronounce woes on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their man-centered religion. And he's not just condemning them or judging them. In fact, I believe he's warning them, woe to you if you persist in man-pleasing and you don't turn and repent unto the living God. Go, go and turn and seek for him, not for the approval of men. He illustrates this for his disciples in a miracle that he performs uh, toward the end of his earthly ministry, after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, after he cleans the temple, he leaves Jerusalem again, at least in Matthew's presentation of the gospel. This is how it's arranged for us. And we read in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there, shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And truly, this is connected to the judgment pronounced on hypocrites. There's no fruit in their lives. Real, true, spiritual fruit. And so what good is it to God? What good is it to the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? This hypocritical surface religion. And so it gets pronounced, uh, or judgment is pronounced upon it, and it withers away and dies. But we might go beyond now even, or under this, this, surface, uh, this, this true problem that Jesus highlights and investigate and ask, okay, what lies beneath man-centered religion? What is, the, what is the presupposition? What is the basic foundational belief of the Pharisees that is so problematic? The basic belief. That which they believe, which the disciples must not believe, is that God is not ultimate. That God is a means to an end. That man and the favor of man is ultimate. That in fact, when you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast, when you come to church, when you sing hymns, whatever you do, it's all for show to men. And you're using the things of God to win favor in the world. Growing up in the mainline church in the PC USA as a kid, um, my church wasn't so much like this, but we knew of churches out literally on the main line in very wealthy parts of town where, and I know this problem is prevalent down here in the south, where you go into a church and you start talking to people and you ask, hey, what, you know, what makes you come to this church? Well, my boss goes here and I want to be seen by him. Or, I have a lot of clients that go to this church, and it's, it's good for me to be here and, and rub shoulders with them. Or, you know, you notice a politician during campaign season visiting churches to make appearances. And, man, that, that whole setup is so abhorrent to God. To go and to exercise religion in order to please man. That, that's not what it's about. And, and Christ is calling it out here. He's calling out that foundational belief of the Pharisees that God serves me, I don't serve God. The things of God serve me. Therefore, my benefit, my advancement in this world, not for the increase of the glory of God in this world and of his worship. And so Christ tells the disciples to beware of the allurements, the enticements, the temptations of man-centered religion. He says, it's all too easy to fall into the trap. He warns his disciples, don't go that way. If you're here this morning, um, where, where we really see this in our own lives is when we're 
We have a deep-seated insecurity, an unsettledness, because we're not validated by men and those around us. And so, do you believe that you should receive more kudos, more pats on the back? Do you need that? Do you hunger and thirst for that rather than for approval by God the Father? Or are you secure in the love of God? Are you secure knowing that your heavenly Father, who is all of grace, He loves you, and He sent His Son for you. Do you know that to be true for yourself? Is God your Father, or is He a taskmaster who teaches you to, as I've already said, win friends and influence people? Is He just a guru? Is He just a guide to how to get ahead in this life? Or is He truly your loving Father who holds you in his embrace, who will not let you go? That's the question that confronts us as we consider the problem and the enticements of man-centered religion. The kind of person who, in this case, since we're talking about gracious giving, the kind of person who gives extravagantly in order to be seen by men is deeply insecure, is somebody who is looking for a fire escape as it were, and believes that the approval of men is that which will give him validation of his personal righteousness and deliver him from that which he fears to come. I'm not saying that's the case with Richard Mellon, but I'm painting this picture off of that illustration. Christ comes, and he unmasks that hypocrisy. He tears the mask right off of it, and he shows that this is no way to address a troubled conscience, that insecurity that comes from a knowledge of sin. Indeed, what Christ calls his disciples to, as he's teaching them here, the way of the Christian life, is to come away from the easy way out, to flee from that, and instead to recognize that sin is dealt with not on the level of performance art, but on the level of spiritual reality the level of the heart, and what you are in your heart, what you are in secret, what you are when nobody sees you, when nobody knows what you're doing for good or ill, what you are in secret in those unseen places is indeed the truth, who you are. So the point's not here, and don't mistake me, it's not wrong for people to find out that you're a religious person or a generous person. It's not even wrong to have your name on a building or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. But what is risky here, what you need to be on the alert for, is this motivation issue. Whether you have a lot of money to give or not is kind of uh, immaterial at this point. What is your motivation for doing the good things you do in your life? Is it to be seen by men, or is it rightly ordered to God to glorify Him simply? because he's a loving father. So having unmasked the vanity of man-centered religion in verses 1 and 2, uh, that religious deeds performed for the approval of men are in fact done in vain, that there's no good about them. Christ then presents to his disciples a picture of the wisdom of God-centered religion in verses 3 and 4, that whatever they give for God's glory shall be rewarded by their heavenly Father. So look at verses 3 and 4 with me. He says, When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, 
so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And if you have the King James Version in front of you, you'll notice it has the words at the end, will reward you in the open or openly, in, in public as it were. And I can, I'll explain why there's a difference there uh, when I get to that point. So we might ask now, we've asked what man-centered religion is. Now, if we're considering the wisdom of God-centered religion, what Jesus is painting for his disciples here, we might ask, okay, what is that? Well, God-centered religion is just the opposite of man-centered religion. It's genuine, authentic, to use some popular words, but perhaps more to the point, it's matched up between the seen and the unseen. What people see about you in public, what you're doing coming to church, praying in the prayer meetings, singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, giving in the offering plate, whatever they see you doing for the Lord, that actually matches the inner spiritual reality of your heart. That's what God-centered religion as practice is here. And most significantly, as Christ makes this point elsewhere, this kind of religion is not manufactured by man. You don't make a mask and put it on your face. This is born from above. It's a result, direct result, of the work of the Holy Spirit in your hearts, remaking you, renewing you after the whole, in the whole man after the image of God. And so then what is the promise of this? Notice that Christ ends what he states here in verse 4 with a promise. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you if you are actually living out a God-centered religion, if this is what's taken hold of your heart. The promise is expressed well in one of our um, documents of, of statements of faith here at Antioch Presbyterian Church, what's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 38 asks, uh, what, what will happen basically to believers at the resurrection when Christ returns and we're raised from the dead? This is what we believe. At the resurrection, what we're looking forward to, believers will be raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. It's simply a summary of a number of truths drawn from Scripture, a number of, of truths expressed in Scripture about what we're longing for as we look ahead to the day of, quote, our reward. Not something we've earned, mind you, but something which is promised to those who have been united to Christ through faith, which is itself a gift of the Spirit who operates in our hearts, bringing forth the fruits of God-centered religion. 1 Corinthians 15.42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. This is promised to all those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Matthew 25, 34, and then 46, Christ is teaching on the judgment, and he says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and he will usher the righteous into eternal life. This is promised to be given openly to those who have been united to Christ. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, 
because we will see him just as he is. And how is Jesus? He is perfectly blessed. He is in a glorified body. He does not live with regret. He does not live with sin. No, he is perfected in holiness. And that's promised to those who are united to him, who are brought into saving relationship with him. God intends, as said in Romans 8.29, those whom he, fore- whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then Psalm 16.11, one of my favorite verses, one of St. Augustine's favorite verses. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And then a rather famous verse in American evangelicalism, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Speaking of the day when Christ returns. But this is the main point. And so we shall always be with the Lord. This is the promise of God-centered religion of true Christian faith, that which is born from above, that which is given as a gift from God the Father. You will be with Him. What did the hypocrites want? They didn't care to be with God. They just wanted to enjoy benefits from being associated with God. But people, those whom Christ is raising up as a renewed humanity, you and me, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, What's promised us, what we're interested in most of all, is communion with God the Father through Christ the Son and by His Spirit, three in one. That is what is pictured for us here in Christ's words as He's teaching on something that seems as mundane as giving. That which is commanded, even. So what's the underlying faith then, or presupposition, the underlying belief of this kind of faith? Well, simply that God is good. And that God is ultimate. That He is worthy of our our adoration, not because of what He can give us, but because of who He is. Perhaps because of what He has done for us. And then also flowing from that is the belief that man then, including the poor among us, those who are destitute, those who are so often dehumanized in our culture, that man is made in God's image, deserving of our love, of our compassion, passion, and our honor. That God, God himself, is the God of grace. And that he receives our gifts through Christ, our mediator, who even pleads for us before his throne, and who has secured by his merit a reward for all those who rest in him. What is the quality, then, of he who gives For God's sake, since this is a passage about giving, when you give to the poor, Christ is assuming the disciples will do that. What is the quality of that person? Simply put, as I've already said, the outward righteousness that you and I can observe as people matches the inward realities that God has planted in the heart of that man. It's not how much you give. It's not how frequently you give. It's not like that. The quality is that whatever you give, whatever you're able to give, to the poor, to the church, whatever, 
that it matches the inward reality, that it's not just a show. Romans 2, 28 and 29 uses the same phrase, in secret, and then also the phrase which the King James includes in the New American Standard omits, in public or openly. It uses the same phrase as it describes the difference between hypocrites in Israel and true believers in Israel. As Paul's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh, he says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, that is, in, uh, in um, or openly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, literally in secret. It's the same words as what we have in Matthew chapter 6. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So we see here what Christ teaches in Matthew 6, it, it matches perfectly with what Paul teaches there in Romans chapter 2, and that is namely that God is concerned with matters of the heart. It's not that outward action doesn't matter. In fact, it does. Christ assumes his disciples are going to give to the poor and be generous because he assumes that they will love mankind if they love the Father. But what he is concerned with goes beyond just outward appearances and considers the whole man in and out. And so the inward realities are of utmost importance. For God looks upon the heart. When man looks at the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And he's faithful to reward those or to requite to those, to recompense them, who by his grace are indeed pure in heart, or else he would not have said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 6.21, at the end of this section, comes back to giving. And what he says there, perhaps even more well-known than our famous phrase in our passage, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, um, but where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again, Jesus is going to ring this bell throughout his sermon. It's a matter of the heart, my disciples. It's a matter of the heart. Indeed, God's motivation, if we will, for the salvation of mankind. It wasn't anything in us. It wasn't done to impress us. But we're told, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. That is what moved God, is his own love. No one else moves him, the unmoved mover. He himself just in and of himself, out of his infinite goodness and love for that which he made, then is that upon which our salvation hangs. Earlier I mentioned Mellon's fire escape, and I returned to it a couple of times. But East Liberty Presbyterian Church has another name, which I actually think is much more fitting for a grand old church building, and that is the Cathedral of Hope. Interesting name. I wonder where it came from. I, I don't actually know, but one of my friends who worked there in Pittsburgh told me that um, built with the big cathedral portion of the church building is this massive fellowship hall. And I said, why is the fellowship hall so big? And they said, well, actually, during the construction, they would hire homeless people 
homeless men who were put out of work because of the Great Depression, put them on the job site, give them jobs for those few years, and even house those guys in uh, this fellowship hall, which they built first while they were building the rest of the cathedral. And so that building, which expressed the great philanthropy of Richard and Jenny Mellon, also provided gainful employment for construction workers, for quarry miners who mined the, the stone, for steel workers who built uh, the, the girders and everything, and all manner of craftsmen and woodworkers and everything for several years. And so in that case, that whole project did represent something of material hope, this worldly hope for the people who were involved. But I wonder if in the midst of all that, how many of those men would have also heard the gospel proclaimed to them day in and day out on the job site as they considered the fact that they were building a church building? How many of them then, in pursuit of hope for survival and, and the brutal winters of Pittsburgh during the Great Depression, also learned of the hope that's found in Christ and in Christ alone? And so I'd ask you then this morning, is your hope fixed on earthly things, reputation, the esteem of your fellow men, making mom and dad happy, pleasing your children even. Is that what your hope is on? Because if so, then it's empty and vain. No amount of charitable giving is going to gain you access to the Father's throne. And certainly no amount of man-pleasing is going to relieve any sense of insecurity that you may feel. No, Christ shows us in Matthew 6, 1-4, religious deeds performed for the approval of men are done in vain, but that which is given for God's glory shall be rewarded by your heavenly Father. So notice what Christ is and is not about in this passage. Because as we go through Matthew, I know many of you are visiting, but as we go through Matthew together, his purpose will become more and more plain in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is that he's not calling us to a religion of mere feeling and sentimentalism or behavior modification. Indeed, he's calling us to a way of life, but one that flows out of hearts that are remade in the likeness of God, who himself is without hypocrisy, who is absolute truth and love, who does all things, the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, for the glory of God, and so calls us to do the same. And he does so, indeed, as our good shepherd, who then secures us in our heavenly Father's everlasting grace. Let's stand together once more for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.